we haven't met, my name's Tony. Uh, good to see you. Second week of Advent. Uh, two things. Uh, as we go into the new year, I've, there's been some interest for creating a more robust, like, women's ministry hangout kind of space. If you are a woman and are interested in being a part of the planning of what we're going to do in 2022, there's a sign-up sheet out there. Also, we're trying to have a much more robust outreach mission focus uh, as we go into the next year. And we're trying to gather some folks that would be interested in some of the planning of that. So if you're ultra interested in that, we're going to gather that team, sign up there, and we'll gather probably in the new year. Make sense? If it doesn't, that's my best. That's the best I got. So now if you're a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, they're over here. Uh, it's going to be awesome. If you're stuck with me, we are going... Uh, we're going to be, man, that was a terrible transition. All right. So Aaron was talking about how Advent, right, is the season of arrival. So what we do at Wellspring is we take a couple weeks to kind of prepare our hearts for celebrating Christmas. So we're going to take a few weeks. If you haven't done it before, uh, we're going to take just a few Sundays. We're going to focus on some teachings in, in Luke in particular and in Matthew. Now, we do this in part because it is so easy to get distracted during this Christmas season. Is it not? Right? You got friends, you got family, you got gifts, you have all these gatherings. Maybe you're planning trips. Like there's so many things to juggle. It is easy in the midst of it to lose sight of the real focus of Christmas. Now, the context of Christmas is actually our need in the world's need. And the truth is, in the busyness of the season, this is probably the last thing on our minds. Like we need to fill the schedule, we need to attend the event. So often in the midst of it, we lose touch with the context of Christmas, right? Which is our need and the world's need for God, right? It's not trees, it's not presents, it's not meals together. It's this sense of need, that is the context of God's arrival in the first century for that first Christmas, right? The people of God, Israel, they're longing for God to show up. They've experienced exile, and they've returned home only to be essentially oppressed and ruled again, this time not by Babylon, but by Rome on their own soil in their own homeland. It's actually a really dark time in Israel's history. Israel is wondering whether God has abandoned them. Have you ever wondered whether God has abandoned you? Have you ever wondered like, God, where are you? I need you now. Why aren't you showing up? Psalm 44, 23, I think captures this. The psalmist says this to God, awake. Why are you sleeping? Yahweh, O Lord. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Translated in modern parlance, God, get out of bed. We need your help. And it's within this dark season that God reveals himself to a woman, a girl named Mary, about his plan to enter and save the world. This is how the story begins, Luke 1, 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if you've been in church a while, you've heard this probably a few times, you skip over it. What I want to do today is slow down a little bit and unpack some of the significance of what's going on here. First thing to notice, the angel Gabriel shows up to meet Mary in a specific place in a specific time. Now, I realize all of us know this, right? Like, you recognize that as a fact, but I think often we read this like a fable, once upon a time. But in fact, right, Mary will just be going about her everyday life. Maybe she's doing the dishes, maybe she's doing laundry, maybe she's hanging out with a friend, maybe she's lonely sitting under a tree, maybe she's in her small little room reading a book. We don't know. But the text says that the angel Gabriel shows up at a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific time of a day when someone is just going about their everyday life. Two, the, the author tells us, right, because of what happened just before, the angel shows up with Zechariah in the temple. So with this story with Mary, what the author is trying to tell us, what Luke is trying to tell us, is that the angel shows up to this woman or this girl named Mary, not in the holy place, the temple, but in the no man's land of rural Nazareth. So imagine yourself, right, after a long day's work, or you're walking the dog, or after a run, or you've maybe just put your child to sleep, or you're changing a diaper, and you go out to sit on the couch, and you show up, and there's an angel sitting there. That's how this story begins. Second, or third, the text tells us that Mary is a virgin betrothed to be married. And sometimes we assume this is like modern-day engagement, but it's actually quite different. So in the Jewish tradition, a girl was normally betrothed between the age of 12 and 13. So pretty young by our standards. And usually when they were betrothed, they were considered legally married. But the thing is, you would stay with your family. The woman, the girl, would stay with her family for one year after betrothal, before she would move in with her husband and his family. And during that year, right, the couple would not have sexual intercourse. They would actually stay apart, but they were legally betrothed and married. So Mary is still living with her family, but betrothed to Joseph. Next, Luke emphasizes that Joseph, right, is descended from the house of David. Now, this is super important to remember, right? The Jewish people, remember, this is a dark time, and they're waiting for a coming king to come and rescue them, right? And this Jewish hope, right, is connected to the house of David, right? Because in the first century, and basically between exile and this time, the scribes and the Pharisees and these people, these religious leaders, are like mining the text of the Old Testament. They're trying to figure out where is the Messiah, the anointed one, going to come? How is he going to come? They're searching and searching the text for hope, for clues of how this is going to happen. And so they go upon texts like 2 Samuel 7. And there's in this text, in 2 Samuel 7, you have this prophet who gets a dream that is then invited to share this dream with David, the king. And this is what it says. So, your house and your kingdom shall be made Sure, forever before me. Your show, throne shall be established 
forever. Right? And as they're mining these scriptures for clues about how the Messiah is going to come, they would turn to a text like 2 Samuel 7 and say, oh, it's connected to David. But 2 Samuel 7 isn't the only place. Isaiah 11.1, Isaiah the prophet writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And if you keep reading Isaiah 11, it's about the Messiah. Again, connected back to the house of David. Jeremiah, also a prophet, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Right? So when Luke writes in this little introduction before the angel actually shows up and talks to Mary, he's talking about David and Joseph being descended from David. And this is going to pop in the first person, you know, the, the reader in the first century as they're reading this and they're going to signal, oh my gosh, something is about to happen. Right? In the present darkness, maybe God is finally going to come to rescue us. Right? This is all packed into the introduction, which we should be aware of, Mary is not privy to. We, the reader, get all these details to shape this interaction. Then in verse 28, the text says, He, the angel, came near to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now we need to recognize here again, right, this is not like a normal greeting in the first century. Like, you don't walk through the market and you know, the falafel dealer has this long line and you're like, whoa, the Lord is with you. You are favored. Look at your line for falafels. Like, blessed are you. Your business is rocking, right? You must be favored. In fact, both parts of this are pretty unique. This idea of the Lord being with you, particularly in a greeting, and this idea of finding favor in a greeting are very unique in the Bible. The phrase, the Lord is with you, actually as a greeting formula, is only used twice in the Bible. Here, and then the story of Gideon, which we talked about a few weeks ago. An angel comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, and then he gives him a task to do what? To deliver God's people from oppression. Here, we see something similar. The angel greets Mary and then gives her a task. Also, this idea of finding favor is pretty unique in the Scriptures. The only other time that a person finds favor in this way are with the stories of Moses and Noah. So right off the bat, right, Mary is being thrown into some pretty incredible company in the Scriptures. Essentially, a Mary, or angel is saying to Mary that she has been chosen by God for a special purpose in salvation history. Imagine it for a second. You're a 13-year-old girl. You're in rural no-man's land of Israel. An angel comes to you in the midst of doing laundry or sitting in your bedroom, reading a book, and tells you, hey, I got big plans for you. Gideon, Noah, Moses, yeah, big plans. What do you do? How do you respond to that? The text tells us how Mary responds. Verse 29, 
Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I want to highlight this phrase, tried to discern, which can be translated as wondered. Now, I think what's tricky about this is like, when there's leftovers in my fridge, I wonder if they are still good. (laughs) My wife, she checks like, how long have they been, you know, in there? Like, I think is actually like an empirical way of doing this. I just smell. I think mine is a better way, but... To wonder in Greek is, or to discern is to make an audit. It's actually an accounting term. It means to like rationally add things up, try and make sense of what is happening. Mary's confused. Who wouldn't be? Why is this angel in my yard, in my house, in my room? And why is he calling, saying that he is with me like he did to Gideon? Why is he saying that I am favored like Noah or Moses? Who am I? Right, and in response to this internal wondering, maybe some of her facial expressions, maybe her jaw hitting the ground, the angel says to her, verses 30 and 31, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him or his name Jesus. All right, so based on the angel's reading of the situation, Likely the fact that he's offered, well, one, that he's showing up in her living room. Two, the fact that he has said some pretty incredible things. And three, he's talking to a young girl in rural Nazareth. He says to her, you know, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Importantly, it's also worth noting this is exactly how the angel responded to Gideon. The angel responds to Gideon. Gideon says, goes up to him. Gideon's in the, the wine press, if you remember this, trying to thresh his wheat because he's terrified. And the angel says to him, don't be afraid. And then the angel's like, hey, and guess what? Uh, you're going to have a baby and you're going to call him Jesus. Now, a few things to note here. First, the angel telling her, you're going to have a child, right? Gideon, Moses, Noah, you got big things coming, girl. This is going to be big. And she knows that throughout salvation history, women have played significant roles. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Rahab, Ruth, Hannah. You know, Mary's thinking to herself, am I going to be one of these women? Second, he gives her a name which is kind of striking. Like, there's not a lot of times in the Scriptures or in life when someone says, you're going to have a baby. This is the name. Usually, we have some discretion there, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I like Tom or David or whatever. The angel is pretty clear, though. You're going to name him Jesus. Now, we say that, but really, he wouldn't have said Jesus. Jesus is the Greek translation of an Aramaic name. He probably would have said something like Yeshua. Or if you think, like, what does that sound like? Does that sound like Joshua? It does. It's actually that name. Jesus is the Greek translation of Joshua, which means this. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. So, Mary, you're going to have a child, and guess what you're going to name the child? Yahweh is salvation. 
If Mary's jaw hadn't dropped, this would have been the moment. The angel seems to pick up on this, so he gives her a little more details. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. You know, I was reading this text this week. I was just like, this is that moment when you're so glad you have a personal recording device in your pocket called a phone. And you're like, wait, can you do this one more time? Record. Right? Because every single word the angel said is like, mic drop. It's not like, you know, when the, when the angel is like, you know, son of the most high. He's not just like riffing. He's not just like making it up. He's actually sort of situating these comments in this long history of Israel. He's echoing back to scriptures that these people have been mining for hundreds of years to figure out how is the Messiah going to come? What is he going to look like? Son of the Most High riffs back to Psalm 2. The psalmist talks about God and his anointed, which means Messiah. Then in Psalm 2, 7, writes this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Right as the first century approached, the common consensus about Psalm 2 and other verses like it was that the Messiah would be called the Son of God. He would be in the line of David, which we already talked about, and he would rule over the nations forever. Mary knows this story. She knows what the angel is talking about. Right? This is the hope that she carried within her. Right? That one day God would return. And through the Messiah, He would overthrow their oppressors. And he would make things right, right. Ruling as king in a forever kingdom. Thing is, right, Mary just never imagined she was going to be central to this plan. But it was the thing the rabbis talked about every week in the Sabbath when they were at the synagogue. It was the hope they focused on every year when they celebrated Passover and thought about God rescuing the people of Israel from Egypt. It was the hope that everyone talked about when three times a year they did this long pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be with God. This wasn't just an idea among lots of ideas. This would have been the hope that Mary and all the people in the first century carried within their minds and in their hearts. And now Mary, a 12 or 13-year-old girl in the rural no-man's land of Nazareth, is at the very center of it. Let's be clear, right? Mary knows where babies come from, right? Just because she lives in the first century doesn't mean that she doesn't understand life. And likely, Mary was familiar with Isaiah 7.14, which talked about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son and calling him Emmanuel, God with us. She, she probably knew this. But the thing is, right, this verse doesn't say anything about the how. Right? How is this going to happen? So Mary's next question is probably the question you or I would ask. Uh, you know, knock, knock. How is this going to happen? You know? 
verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, as modern readers, we read this and we're kind of like, isn't the angel being kind of cryptic? Like, what does this mean? But Mary, she's really versed in the Old Testament. Everyone in Israel would have known a thing or two about what the angel is saying right now. First, the angel says the Holy Spirit is going to be involved in this. Now, often we think of the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity because we have 2,000 years of church history. We have a New Testament. We have a lot of stuff that Mary didn't have access to. For Mary, she would have looked back on the Old Testament and she would have said, oh, what does the Spirit do? He brings life. You read through the Old Testament, you see this connection between the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. Isaiah 32, 15, the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness, the desert, becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The Spirit comes, and what happens in the desert? Life emerges. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. So when the Holy Spirit is mentioned here, Mary's like, bing, bing, okay. The God is the bringer of life. Yeah, he should probably be involved in this. Two, the angel says the power, that God's power will, quote-unquote, overshadow her. And we're thinking, what does that mean? Like, I live in PG. It's like, there's all kinds of fog. Is that what we're talking about? Like, lots of fog. Life-giving fog. Yeah, you're like, no, I take vitamin D when the life-giving fog shows up, you know? Well, the thing is, overshadow actually echoes back to God's presence settling on the tabernacle. This is the language that's used in the New Testament. This is the echo. This is the hyperlink, right? That sort of link you hype, and it just takes you where the source is. That's the hyperlink. When Israel was in the wilderness, right, they had been rescued from Egypt, slavery in Egypt. Before they arrived at the promised land, they had this tent of meeting and a tabernacle where God would show up and be present. This is where they would worship God. Exodus 40, 35 says that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, same word, overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you have this sense, right? The angel is saying that the the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of God is going to surround Mary like God surrounded the tabernacle, and he's going to bring life to her body. Now, let's be clear. Mary gets a lot in this moment, but she can't put all this together that quick. Who could? The angel's making some pretty profound announcements. Mary's wondering, what does it mean? How do I make sense of this? And it's in the midst of her not exactly knowing what's happening. But knowing there's an angel in my living room and God is clearly saying he's going to do something decisive through me. She says this in verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There's a lot to say here. What's clear is Mary doesn't get it all. But in the midst of not getting it, she still is open. She still says, yes, 
was reading this book, uh, Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller. And in it, he talks about this conference he attended. And in the conference, he rips back on like what he heard this person say. And this is what he hears. I think it's relevant. It says this. So this is the speaker at the conference that Tim Keller is listening to. And now I'm talking about lots of layers there. Okay. If the distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles, was no more than the thickness of a sheet of paper, right? So 93 million miles is the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay? Got the analogy so far? Well, there we go. Then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high, right? The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper over 300 miles high. You getting the significance of this? Keep in mind that there are more galaxies in the universe than we can number. There is more, it seems, than there is more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grains of sand in the seashore. There are more galaxies than there are sand at PG and then throughout the whole world. Get that? Now, if Jesus Christ holds all of this together with just one word of his power, is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? (laughs) Sit in that for a second. Think of how big the universe is. God created it with a word of his power. He holds and sustains everything within his might. I think in this moment, Mary gets this. When the angel shows up in your room and God says, the one holding this whole thing together says, I have a job for you. You say something like, I am your servant. Not my will, but yours be done. Mary doesn't get exactly what's going to happen, but she has a sense of how big God is. And faithfulness, Mary's faithfulness is even more profound given her social standing. Right? She's about to have a child during her betrothal, and even if Joseph stays with her, which is a big if at this moment, Right? When everyone finds out, like, these are not dumb people, they're going to do the math. Like, they know it's about 12 months. Oh, you're pregnant. Hmm. Either you and Joseph were not sort of keeping it legit, you know, during that betrothal, or you were not faithful, Mary. Either way, that's going to bring disgrace upon her child. She knows this. She knows that the road ahead is not going to be smooth. She lives in a small town, in a rural area. People are going to find out. And yet, despite the fact that she might have a life of disgrace, she says to this angel and ultimately to God, I am your servant. Not because she knows all the answers, but because she knows who God is. Now, I want to sort of take a moment to take this story, which takes place a long time ago, and try and figure out, okay, so how does this make sense in your life? 
As you come to church this morning, as you try and juggle the craziness of this season, as you maybe wrestle with your own emotions in this season, right? This season is not always the easiest for many of us. What do we do with a story like this? First, I just want to say, I know two things. The first one is this. I just want to say, I think too often we presume that first century people just kind of like get it. It's like they're kind of naive. They're kind of foolish. They'll believe anything, those first century people, you know? C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery, where we like look back at people from past ages and think like, they just don't get it, you know? But the truth is, what the text says is that Mary discerns. She wonders. She's trying to make sense of what is happening in the same way that I think all of us would. She is rationally thinking through what is happening. Sometimes I think that we, we think Mary's words, right, I am the Lord's servant, are simply because she gets it. She gets all the nuances. She, like, understands everything. Or she's just, like, radically, like, naive. I think we forget that sometimes, right, and particularly in this text, Mary, it's not all clear to her. It doesn't all make sense to her. She's wondering. And yet, in this moment of wondering, in this moment of doubt, in this moment of confusion, she still says yes. I think it's important to us because sometimes I think we come into church and there can be this pressure to feel like we need to get all our thoughts and all of our emotions and all our behaviors in this nice little tidy package, like an expertly wrapped present at the base of the tree. But in my experience, this isn't really the way life works. Instead, like Mary, we're forced to say yes. We're forced to make choices in the midst of our discerning, our wondering, our doubting. We're invited to follow as we are still making sense of things. So if you come in this morning, you feel like you're carrying some wonderings, I just want to say, I think we all are. But there's this interesting thing often in church when we feel like our doubts are the thing that we should hide. We feel like we should take those doubts, those wonderings, those pieces we don't, can't quite put in order and we feel like we should hide them. We should pretend like they're not there and tell everyone, oh, I get it. I love this quote Tim Keller has in his book, Hidden Christian. He says this, it's like mind-blowing to me. If you have never stood and looked at the gospel or Christmas, I would say, and found it ridiculous, impossible, inconceivable, I don't think you have really understood it. What is he getting at here? He's getting at, like, think of Christmas. Big G, the one, the God, who carries all of the universe, all of the galaxies, holds them together. He decides, there, I'm going to now take all of my power, put it into this human person to save these creatures that are broken and can't find their way through much of anything. I'm going to enter into human life. I am going to become a baby, wrinkled, powerless, and dependent on mother's milk. Cloth diapers, the whole shebang. 
and he comes to rescue us as individuals and as a world. Or the gospel, right? That Jesus, the Lord of the universe, would take on human flesh to save us. It's pretty incredible stuff. So if you find yourself this morning with some wondering, some doubts, some curiosity of like, how does that happen? I want to encourage you. Allow those wonderings to turn into questions and allow those questions to lead you into community. Because I think one of the things we do in church life is we want to pretend like we are like Mary without questions. Oh, we, we get it. And what that does is actually decreases God's ability in this moment because we wall ourselves off from God and from others, pretending like we have our act together. And we say to God, no, 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 I don't want you, God, to actually come into the reality of my mind and heart, my doubts, my wonderings. You keep them at arm's distance. I want to invite us in this Advent season to actually maybe tell someone the doubts you bring into this room. Tell someone the the wonderings you bring into this room and invite them to pray with you, to walk with you in the midst of the imperfection of your Christian life. Second, I think we need to consider Mary's willingness to say yes, even though she didn't understand. Too often I think we presume, right, that Mary's radical obedience is simply because she gets it like we don't. But if you think about it, read through the Gospels. Right? When Jesus asks people to follow him, right, it's not this long discussion with the potential disciple getting to negotiate terms. You notice that? When Jesus called, you have two choices. You can either surrender or you can do your own thing. So while Mary does offer this profound example, what she does is in reality what we are all called to do. Let go. Trust. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Will we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But this is the call. And in many ways, what this call is doing, right, is actually bringing us back to the garden in Genesis 2 and 3. God has said, hey, are you going to live my way? Well, the, the one thing I don't want you to do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. We can either do life on our own terms, deciding how we do wisdom, or we can in faithfulness let go, trust God, and not ourselves in that moment. Trust in the wisdom of God. And this isn't because God is some grumpy, controlling meanie in the sky who's just like, I just want you to do it my way. No, He is the creator of the universe. We're creatures. He is the Savior. We're the sinner. He is the King. We're the servant. I want to invite the worship team up because as we enter worship today, I just think we need to sort of, in the mire, in the confusion, in the complexity of this Advent season, when we get distracted by so many things, I think it's important for us 
to have a moment where we just refocus our eyes on Jesus, right? That he is the one who is the savior that is coming to rescue us. So as the worship team gets up here and just want to invite us in this moment to just take some space to align our hearts and our minds and our spirits with God. As Advent ramps, I guess I just want to ask us, like, are we willing to let go? Right, let go is modern parlance for surrender. Are we allowing, are we open to allowing God to direct our lives in this season? Are we allowing him to be God? As we just sort of sit in this space, I just invite you to uh, adopt a posture of prayer. And if you are open, I just invite you to say to God in, in your own mind, like, God, I surrender to you. Help me to see the things that I worship instead of you. 